Care ascoltatrici e cari ascoltatori, welcome everybody to this second installment of Meet the Linguist. Uh, today I have the great pleasure of having Lucia Busso, uh, which is an old acquaintance of mine and a dear friend. Um, Lucia is now a postdoctoral researcher uh, in the United uh, Kingdom, but I don't want to spoil her anything because she will tell um, everything about what she does and uh, of course she cannot be uh, in front of me right now so we are having a long distance podcast and I hope that uh, the sound will be good enough for uh, everybody. So uh, benvenuta Lucia, thank you very much. So, um, before digging into uh, your research area, I, I'm, I'm very curious about your, your background and specifically, what, uh, what was the reason that pushed you to start studying linguistics? Hi, Ricardo. First of all, thank you very much for having me here today. Well, here, metaphorically speaking, but for the podcast. And... So I studied both my uh, undergraduate and master's degree in Italy. So I just recently moved to the UK. And I was first, I first um, decided, well, generally speaking, to be a linguist. I think maybe my second day of university or first, I don't remember, but uh, in Italy, as you will well remember, the first class that we have to take is general linguistics, where we are introduced to the very basics of linguistics, some part of the historical part of the discipline. And almost immediately I thought, this is so cool. I don't want to do literature anymore. I don't give a damn about literature anymore. I just want to do this for the rest of my life. And then I did. Yeah, that's super cool. Also, because probably we have to, to make it clear to everybody, in Italy, we don't have the chance to have like a bachelor degree in linguistics. Oh, no. So uh, you meet linguistics in humanities or literature bachelor, and um, you just have the chance to, to pursue like a, a, a deep uh, study of linguistics just in the master. So that's very cool that you had this, uh, let's say, uh, love at first sight with linguistics, which is completely different from me, actually. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was really love at first sight. And then I knew that I wanted to get my master's in Giza because um, that was one of the best uh, opportunities for me in Italy to study linguistics. It was one of the few places with a linguistics degree together with Siena, where oh. you went. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, just basically, I, I enrolled in a literature program, but then I immediately knew that I couldn't care less about literature anymore. I wanted to get bigger. Yeah, and uh, it's totally respectable. I, I, I do feel you. I do the same. So um, yeah, but I know, for example, that. Um, you, you know, we, we, we have some sort of um, a difference uh, going on here because I am oh, a yeah. very strong uh, supporter of generativism, while you, on the other hand, you, you don't support generativism, right? Drama. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. Well, um, my, my research and my studies were deeply influenced by cognitive science and what is called usage-based linguistics. 
So the framework that I use sometimes in general, that I think in more when I approach linguistic data is not at all generative. Ah, oh, damn it. No, in usage-based linguistics, almost, not all of them, but almost all of the principles of generative linguistics are considered to be, well, not false because we don't know. Well, the reason is that neither of us know what's yes, going on exactly. really. But, uh, so you consider language as an emergent phenomena that emerges from the input, so there is no innative capacity or anything and that you can study language in usage, whereas generativism think that language is more an internal phenomena. So many differences, and linguists are very adamant in their differences. Absolutely, they they they, they are. Uh, it looks like you know being into two different political parties, and we're fighting yeah. each other sometimes, right? But yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyhow, what is your research area right now because I know it and it's super cool but can you define forensic linguistics can you tell us what is it yes sure I'm pretty new to it because I kind of stumbled upon my job as it is I didn't really look for it it just happened to me and I thought oh cool I don't know anything about this I can learn something new so uh, I I've started in November in this job so it's less than a year that I've been working in this community of research, but it's super cool. And I've never had a chance to really study it or learn it because in Italy, we don't really have any forensic linguistics program or exam. So approaching it from outside, it kind of looks something from a TV series, something from Criminal Minds or something of the sort. Yes, exactly. Whereas in reality, you see, exactly, it looks... Uh, I, I don't know if you've watched on Netflix the um, Unabomber um, TV series. Not yet. Ah, uh, it's really cool. Watch it. Perfect. Thank where you. Where they use forensic linguistics to, uh, well, linguistics to find the culprit. But as I discovered, forensic linguistics is, is very, it's multifaceted. Mm -hmm. So um, forensic linguists, they can study, yes, of course, uh, criminal data, let's say, so it could be um, police interviews, or emergency calls, or letters, or emails, um, this kind of police data. Yeah, because this is, this is very interesting, okay, if you, if you check, uh, you know, the simple definitions around forensic linguistics, you, you see it's the linguistics concerning legal texts, or um, yeah. processes, and, and this kind of stuff, but at, at the very core, um, it's, it's a bit difficult to understand uh, for people who do not work uh, with forensic linguistics, as I'm totally, you know, I'm, I know nothing about it. What kind of texts uh, are you uh, working with? And uh, what kind of um, analysis do you perform on them? Can you tell us more well, about it? Was, yes. Well, uh, as I was saying, it's really um, variegated and different. So the main core, I would say, is textual, textual data. So you can have texts in many different forms. I don't know, suicide letters, or um, extortion letters, or uh, abuse letters, or emails, or um, social media texts, because a lot of forensic linguists also study 
um, social media in the forms of like uh, cyberbullying and of the like. So, so which second? This this means that you can actually analyze, um, let's say, the texts that are shared on social medias in order to, let's say, understand uh, what kind of people uh, have written them. So you can, in a way, identify the people that are behind them. Well, um, yes. Now, in forensic linguistics, they tend to not talk about identity anymore mm -hmm. but recognition or because each of us has what's called a linguistic marker so we tend to speak and write in certain ways so of course if I will write a text and you write a text even if we're talking about the same thing these texts will be different sure and this this will partially reflect our background our gender, our experience, our view of the world, and everything. So, of course, it's possible to uh, use texts to do what's called authorship analysis. So, try to understand who the author of the texts is. And, of course, this is absolutely very interesting, but uh, does this have a sort of effect on uh, reality? Uh, what I mean is... Can you actually apply the um, the tools of forensic linguistics uh, to actual cases, to actual uh, problems in real life? You talked about like suicide letters or threats or social media uh, bullying via social media or even you know general uh, racism-based uh, threats. So, are there? cases of actual uh, life experiences in which forensic linguistics helped solving issues? Of course, yes. One of the many tasks of forensic linguists is actually to help the police as an external expert. So just to give you an example, which is pretty fun. Some years ago, my professor, well, my line manager, which is Professor Kim Grant, and he's one of the most famous forensic linguists in the UK, was called to um, help the police in an investigation they were doing on some abuse letters that, that were being sent around England. They were really malicious and really violent and were sent to different uh, types of people, especially medical doctors, but also imams and private citizens. And they were really racist. So they were not threats as such, but they were really abusive and really, really ugly. And these letters, besides going to private citizens, started to arrive to the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown. So of course the attention to this anonymous writer was increased. And they contacted my professor to sort of doing a linguistic analysis on the text. Clearly, linguistic analysis is not psychological profiling, so you cannot say, oh, this is a white male between 25 and 35 and some of these things, you just use the text to find some clues that could, could lead you potentially to an individual. And he did, because these texts are very dense with adjectives, like Im immensely long strings of adjectives. Wow. And these adjectives, yeah, and not really nice adjectives. Like I, I can very, imagine. Yeah. And, uh, all of these adjectives and the racist terms were, were sounding kind of a bit old 
dated. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I don't want to offend anyone, but um, a modern racist would refer to people of color with niggers and not negroes, whereas in the text you have multiple occurrences of negroes and a lot of talking about hospitals and pensions and women care in the hospital. So, of course, my professor said, well, the high use of adjectives is typical of women writing, so this should be a woman. And all of these lexical cues point to the fact that she's over 65 years of age because some of the words she was using, he, she was using, were absolutely outdated in modern English but could be, you know, dated to the English of the 1960s or the 1950s. And of course the police laughed in his face. Well, they didn't really believe him and they discarded the linguistic analysis altogether. And then they found out, not with the linguistic analysis unfortunately, but with DNA, that the writer was a very nice English grandma from Southampton. Oh my god, really? Yeah. Oh my god, that's 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 wow. Uh I mean, when it comes to this kind of, you know, uh, racism and being so violent against the institution, you don't think that is your um, fellow grandma uh, leaving behind, you know, your door. Oh my God, that's, wow, that's impressive. But um, it, it's super interesting. Now I'm picturing, you know, uh, your everyday life uh, in, uh, in this complete uh, black suit going into this beautiful <laughs> lawyer kind of building and trying to find out... Uh, uh, the secret life of acres and uh, you know thieves and stuff like that. It's super cool. But um, as far as I as I understand, this um, this area of linguistics is really um, uh, let, let's say it's really uh, probably is born and uh, is thriving in uh, in the UK and probably in the US for because. Um, I don't. I cannot really think of, for example, an Italian tradition about that. So, is is no. there like? Um, am I saying something completely wrong, or it's just an impression? No, not really. You're correct. In Italy, there is no um, forensic linguistics program, but there is a laboratory in the University of Calabria where Professor Romito does forensic voice analysis. So he's a phonetician, so he works with speech and, you know, um, phone registrations and all such, which is something that we do at Aston University as well. Not me, someone else, but they do it. Uh, but yes, you're right. The forensic linguistic tradition is more uh, rooted in the UK and in the US. And even there, it's really, really new because my, I work at the Aston Institute for Forensic Linguistics, which was first called the, the Center for Forensic Linguistics. And it's one of the main um, hubs, one of the main spots for forensic linguistics. We have a master's degree in forensic linguistics and was only uh, created in 2008 or something. It's one of the oldest. So it's, a really it's very new. recent, yeah, wow. First, it was, you know, people working in applied linguistics, specializing in maybe forensic analysis, but there wasn't really a discipline as such. 
And as it happens in, in many cases, I mean, is there a difference between, uh, uh, let's say, the more English-based forensic linguistics and the American or other? Yes. Yes. Well, um, in America, as I mean, uh, as far as I know, which, again, I'm not an expert, <laughs> so double-check what I say. <laughs> but in America, uh, they tend to have a more applied vision of the discipline. So the forensic linguist, his job is basically to help the police and they work on the investigations. Whereas um, in Europe, um, forensic linguists can also do um, basic research so they can have research interests that are not as applied and not only serve the police. And furthermore, in Europe, legal linguistics uh, is a part of a forensic linguistics, whereas in America are two separate disciplines. So you either do language and law, or you do forensic linguistics, and these are, you know, similar but um, not the same. Whereas in Europe, they tend to conflate into one another, so they're all called forensic linguistics in general. Okay, but um, as you said, you work in the United Kingdom, but um, what is your research project? Well, that perfectly, uh, that's a perfect uh, anticipation of my project because I work on legal language. Well, actually, I work on uh, what is called lay legal language. So the types of um, legal documents that should not really be legal as for a specialized audience, but should be directed to everyone. Mm -hmm. So terms and conditions of websites or privacy notes or a bank contract, you should be able to understand what your bank is saying to you. And um, it seems really boring if I tell you like this, because I would be bored. But I'm trying to make it more fun because I, I approach the problem from a linguistic complexity point of view. So I study, I investigate the linguistic and grammatical complexity of these texts and I try to find out which notes are the most difficult to read and to process for speakers, uh, especially in my idea, but I'm just at the beginning, for what is called vulnerable population of speakers. So speakers who maybe uh, do not have a full access to the text. So of course, you and me, um, we are highly educated and we have been reading difficult texts for all our lives. And trust me, I tried reading a bank contract, like a standard bank contract, and I couldn't understand a word. And if I don't understand a word, that I am a native Italian speaker and a proficient English speaker, what if, I don't know, an immigrant who has just come to Italy has to open a bank account? It would be very difficult for him, and there would be uh, well, a not linear relationship with the bank because of course the bank will have all the power. And so we, that's the main aim. And we have to say that in Italy we have like a specific word to refer to this very strange 
bureaucratic language. You know, sometimes it's called politikese and sometimes some yeah. other times is um, burocratese if it comes, you know, from the bureaucracy offices. So I think this is, um, it's, uh, you raised a very interesting point because um, I, I, when I moved to Norway, of course, I had no, absolutely no knowledge of Norwegian. And when I opened my bank account, I, I trusted them. I didn't know what I was sign, signing. So I was like, oh, yeah. No, let's give them faith. So yeah, but um, that's that's very 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 interesting, and it seems to be very rooted in reality. Um, you you um, talked about the kind of texts that uh, you analyze. So, um, what kind of texts again uh, are you actually dealing with, and uh, how do you actually analyze them? Do you read them? Do you process them in a specific way? Do you use corpora? What um, what do you do with with those texts? I try not to read them as they are really, really very, very boring, as you can imagine. <laughs> so qualitative analysis at a minimum, if I can avoid it. But yes, uh, I collected a corpus. So, you know, a collection of different types of um, lay legal language. So I had bank contracts, I have utility contracts like phones and gas bills and stuff. And I also included the summaries that the European Commission uh, sends out summarizing some of the laws that they made regarding some, um, well, argument, you know. So you have like, the what the European ha um, Commission has decided for climate or what they have decided for fishing. You know, and they try to summarize this in a lay language for everyone to understand. Spoiler alert. <laughs> It's not for everyone to understand. But yeah, so I have this corpus of this kind of texts, and then I'm still at the first phase, so I'm running analysis on these texts. The second step will be to actually extract patterns or phrases or sentences from this corpus and test speakers on them. So ask people, do you really understand what this piece of writing says I don't think you do but please go ahead that's that's very interesting and um, has as a, as a linguist and as a person as an, a linguist who works in the forensic linguistic area um, what kind of suggestions uh, do you think are relevant for our institutions to make you know texts and laws and similar legal um, texts um, that all the citizens need to understand and need to have access to, what kind of suggestions would you uh, recommend to the institutions to make, you know, a sort of better society that we deeply need? Well, um, you're asking too much of me, but there is some research in this uh, field, especially in the English, in, in English linguistics. So. Uh, and I am seeing this in the corpus because the English corpus seems to be way more easier than the Italian one. The Italian one is much more complex and rich in syntax and syntactic structures. Oh, there, I quoted Chomsky, there you go. <laughs> Thank you for the quotation. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's a really difficult thing, actually, because you need to balance the comprehensibility of the text because, of course, everyone has to understand it with the legal requirements, because these are often contracts, so they're legally binding. So, of course, they have to say certain things in a certain way for them to 
be considered as contracts. But then again, they must be understandable. So one thing that the corporations already do, which is useful but not enough, is provide a glossary. So a long list of definitions of all the words that are used in the texts, defining everything. But this is clearly very long. No one, I think, will ever read pages and pages of definition. And so there should be another way to try to simplify the language, maybe um, breaking some of the most difficult nodes at a syntactic level. So for example, uh, there are, especially in the Italian one, there are a lot of implicit sentences and very long sentences, very long periods. So maybe try to break them up a bit could be an idea. So Italian bureaucracy is, you know, um, huge also in the kind of language that it, it uses. So that's very good to know. I'm not surprised, very not surprised. Oh. <laughs> but uh, but this makes me, uh, <clears throat> makes me uh, think about uh, something that you said um, before, that um, you, um, in your project, you will deal uh, with both quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis. So... Um, you read texts, but you also have some part of corpora analysis and some experimentation and with, with actual people. So how do you, uh, and, and of course you said that you are at the initial stage of your project, so um, how do you balance qualitative and quantitative analysis or how will you balance these two, uh, these two elements? Well, um, it's really interesting because I came from um, a PhD position in Pisa where my supervisor Alessandro Lenci is a computational linguist. So my main uh, background as a PhD student was uh, among very quantitatively driven people and I always felt like I was the most qualitatively oriented one, you know. And now I'm surrounded by people who approach linguistics from uh, a very much qualitative kind of analysis. And suddenly I am the quantitative, quantitative one. <laughs> so they all come to me for uh, questions about quantitative analysis. And that's really strange for me. But I think it's, it's a really interesting position to be in because both worlds are uh, have some very interesting things that they can contribute to the literature, the analysis of language. So uh, I'm trying to let go of my, you know, background, which basically says if it's not quantitative, it's not good, and embrace the fact that yes, you can count things and you can measure things and you can do experiments and run statistical analysis, and that's very useful but you know language must also be approached from a more holistic point of view and more qualitative kind of analysis can highlight things that just purely quantitative methods really cannot so that's that's something that i hope i will i will try to balance more 
Good, I, I absolutely agree. And and uh, guys, she's absolutely great with statistics and R. And every time I had an issue with R or with statistics, I was immediately running to Lucia for, uh, you know, crying. Oh my God, how can I do this? How can I do that? Um, so I'm pretty sure that you will manage to balance the qualitative and the quantitative parts of your um, of your project, I have no doubt. Um, <laughs> before uh, letting you go, I have a very final question. Um, you might have experienced um, this uh, many times, specifically in Italy, I have to say. Uh, when you tell people that you do linguistics, they, they react with a strange face and then they say, oh, So how many languages do you speak? And oh my God, this is, you know, a very annoying question. Um, I want to make um, a sort of, um, uh, let's say that you meet this person again and they keep asking you how many languages do you speak? In less than one minute, what would you answer to make them understand that linguistics is not knowing languages? Okay, um, well, at first, i read somewhere, I cannot remember where, that asking a linguist how many languages does he speak is like asking a doctor how many diseases he has. And that's really, really fun because that's really true. So what I usually reply, I wish I replied this, but I'm not witty enough. Um, I always reply that I do the scientific study of language and that I deal with the internal structure of it and not with languages. But that's a really different, that's really difficult situation and yes you're right in Italy especially every time you say what you do everyone asks and how many languages do you speak absolutely that's a recurrent topic and uh, we're here to fight this question and to make them understand yes. so yeah um, Lucia, thank you very much. Uh, this was the, this was the the last question of uh, of our podcast. Um, really, grazie. It was a pleasure uh, having you. <laughs> It was really a pleasure having you here, and um, to our um, listeners and followers, uh, I keep telling you, see you next time, because I don't know what else I can tell, but meet you virtually next time. Ciao. Ciao, ciao.